0: We are continuing our series through the characters we have called the blacklist, those who uh, made some kind of impact during Holy Week, uh, in such a way especially that it uh, it made it difficult for people and who who characterized in their own lives some of the worst of what is in our lives as well. So we, we think about these characters and we examine them, not just to see what they were like long ago, but also to learn things which will help us to be more faithful. We're going to begin with uh, reading Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23, as we are introduced to the Apostle Peter once again and his part uh, in this great drama. Listen to the Word of God. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we move into this text and consider the Apostle Peter today, I pray that you would give us a window into not only your grace and your mercy, but also into our own tendency to stumble. And I pray that in doing so, Lord, you will encourage us to cling closely to you in our time of need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, of all the characters that we are dealing with during this sermon series on the blacklist, Peter is, first of all, really the most unlikely. We think of the other people we've been examining and they were um, either power brokers or they were pawns of either the religious or governmental establishments, and you can say in a sense that they were kind of bad folks. I mean, their lives were on a trajectory that did not honor the things of God, that did not lead people to God, And through years and years of scheming after Jesus' ministry became public, they were ones who were trying their very best to do anything to squelch the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Well, we go to Judas, who we will look at at the end of the series, and Judas was a fellow disciple of Peter, but his heart was in the wrong place. His actions were in the wrong place, and eventually his actions and decisions led to his death and the death of Jesus But Peter's kind of an interesting character to have in our list because he wasn't one of these religious leaders who was pushing against the ministry of Jesus. And he wasn't like Judas, whose heart was wholly bad and who was looking for ways to to make Jesus stumble. Peter instead was a beloved disciple. He was a leader among the disciples. There are many aspects of Peter's life that we would look at and hold up and say, wow, what insight or what courage... Or what's support for Jesus in Jesus' time of need? But here we come to Peter at a time in his life when he's a stumbling block. So Peter is really the most unlikely of all of those in our series. Peter is also really the most ironic because Jesus, as I read to you this morning, has just looked upon Peter and said, Peter, you've got your confession right, you know who I am, and you're going to be the rock upon which I build my church. And the word in Greek for rock is petros, which is Peter. So there's a pun going on here in many ways, but Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to be the guy. And so Peter's life is, it's a mixture. It's a mix of other orientation. It's a mix of wanting to follow Jesus. It's a mix of doing things impulsively. And like all of it's, he's a sinful human being. So this morning, as we look at these different lives, the temptation is always easily there, I think, with Caiaphas and Herod and folks like that to say, well, I'm I'm not like that at all. But in our best moments, we can say, gosh, I'd really like to be like Peter. But I don't want to be like Peter in this text. So let's kind of listen to Peter and look at Peter's life in such a way that we appreciate both the strengths of his life And also appreciate the fact that he was a sinful man. And just as we have strengths, Peter had strengths. As we have weaknesses, Peter had weaknesses. And I hope that in doing so, we can come to greater faithfulness ourselves. So Jesus leads this discussion with two questions. This question comes from the mouth of Jesus. First of all, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? He wants to know generally what the disciples are hearing in the world around them. But then he focuses it and says, who do you say that I am? Because in the end, for each and every one of us, it's not what everybody else is saying about Jesus that that counts, it's what we're saying about Jesus. Who do we identify Jesus as being? Who do we believe him to be? These are critical questions at this time in Jesus' life. Time is winding down for him. He's moving on his way to Jerusalem. There's very little room for error because there's very little time left. So Jesus wants the disciples to be very clear about who he is because that's going to make a difference for the rest of their lives. Peter's initial answer shows that he's been paying attention. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And so his confession is correct. And Jesus blesses Peter, and he honors Peter for for paying attention and for listening and understanding the very character of who Jesus is. And Jesus affirms Peter's answer. He says, yes, indeed, I, I am the Christ. And I want to pause for just a moment and say, think about what this means for Peter and the disciples. The Jewish people for hundreds of years have been looking for the Messiah to return, they're looking for the, the restoration of the kingdom of Israel to preeminence in the world. They're looking for a sense of freedom from the Roman oppressors. They're looking for the opportunity to worship God again in the temple. And the Messiah was the one who would come and who would lead Israel into all these things. And so when Jesus says, yes, I am the Messiah, the disciples, are, they're full. They're full of both gratitude and they're full of a sense of promise because they're thinking, wow, in the, in the days and years ahead, in the centuries ahead even, God's kingdom is going to be restored and, and we're going to be there to see it. We're going to be those ones who see the Messiah come again in his glory. But Jesus then turns things in a whole different direction. And he says, because I am the Messiah, There are some things I must do. And as John MacArthur says, these musts come thundering out of eternity and from a much larger perspective than what the disciples understand. Jesus says, first of all, I must go to Jerusalem. Well, the disciples are okay with that. I mean, they're heading on their way to Passover. No problem, Jesus. Let's go to Jerusalem with you. Let's celebrate the Passover. Let's Let's, as the Messiah, see what you're able to do now in Jerusalem. That's okay in their minds. But then Jesus says, I must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute. The Messiah is going to suffer? The chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, they're gonna do something to the Messiah that is so totally out of their realm of possibility that it literally slaps them in the face. The Messiah does not have anything done to him, especially by these folks. And so you can feel Peter's blood start to boil in this. And then he says, and I must be killed. Now, must is a big word. It's a word which which says in Jesus' mind and now to the disciples' mind, these things have to happen. It's not, well, maybe we can make these ha- things happen. Maybe they have to happen. Jesus says, it must happen. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer, and I must be killed. And then Jesus says, finally, and I must be raised up again on the third day. But you can see the scene play out that Peter has heard the first three things, and he's, he seems not to have heard the last one. He's so overwhelmed of the idea that the Messiah must suffer that he just blurts out, no, Lord, never is this going to happen. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone and and you say some things and you can see them start to check out and their eyes kind of roll and they get kind of this glassy stare and they're not listening to you anymore? You ever seen that? I confess I've done that and I'm sure all of us have at some time. And then we say something else, and the first thing that they say to us has nothing to do with the last thing we've said, because they aren't listening anymore. They want to respond to the first things that we have said. And that's what seems to happen to Peter. His eyes and his heart have glazed over, and he misses this very important thing that Jesus says about the resurrection. Now, let's slow this down for a moment. This is really a heavy moment in the life of the disciples, We know the end of the story, but the story's just unfolding for Peter and for the other disciples at this point. So we can feel his confusion begin to to mount as Jesus goes farther into the musts. We can feel Peter's blood start to boil. We can feel his anger rise and we can feel his fear grow. And he's missing the larger perspective. Let's not assign too much blame at the moment here because we often stumble when our hearts get ahead of our heads as Peter does. There's a story told of one farmer who went to go visit another farmer, and he says, uh, Joe, I need to borrow some rope. And the second farmer says, well, I can't give it to you because I've got to tie up my milk. The first farmer says, tie up your milk? That doesn't make any sense. The farmer says, yeah, but when somebody doesn't want to do something, any excuse will do. That's what happens to us. If we don't wanna do something, any excuse will do. So Peter's blood boils, his anger rises, his fears grow, and he blurts this out impulsively. Now we know Peter to be impulsive, but unlike our other blacklist characters who schemed and obsessed about what to do with Jesus, Peter's stumbling rises out of the pressure of the moment and a surprise that what Jesus says going to happen to him, is going to happen. And so Peter stumbles, and he says something very important. He says, you will never. This will never happen to you. It's kind of a scary thing and kind of a presumptive thing to stand before the Lord of the universe, the Messiah, and tell him what he's supposed to do and not supposed to do. Peter is presuming to know, and so he blurts this out. And Peter gets it wrong because he's looking at Jesus through the lens of his theological system, Judaism, rather than looking at his theological system through the lens of Jesus' life. It's not an uncommon practice, we do this all the time. We see the world through the lens of what we want to have happen, what we hope to have happen, what we expect to happen, rather than through the lens of, as what Jesus says, must happen. And sometimes life is like that. When the reality of a situation comes crashing down upon us and even though it's not exactly what we wanted to have happen, we've got to deal with it on those terms. My father died many years ago after a long bout with cancer. It was long and it was hard. And dad just kind of faded out toward the end, and it was expected. We knew that dad was going to die. But when it finally happened, when that moment happened, I remember it just came crashing down on me. It was like I couldn't, I couldn't believe it happened, even though I knew it was going to happen. And it made me think of, of times when growing up on the ocean, I would go body surfing, and body surfing is a really fun thing, but when the waves get really big, anything can happen. And so... You see a wave coming, and it's maybe just another wave. And all of a sudden, it does funny things, and it gets bigger than you expect, and you're, you, you're crashing, you're upside down, you're sideways, you have no idea which way is up, you got water running into your nose, and, and you just don't know what to do. And you have to just wait it out and see what happens. And in this case, in my dad's case also, you, you react. Unedited by social convention or political correctness or concern for what others think. That's what Peter does. No. No. You will never. And Jesus says to Peter, you're becoming a stumbling block for me. Later on in the gospel narrative, Jesus is with the disciples in the upper room. In Matthew 26 we read these These verses here in verses 16, rather 69 through 75. Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. A servant girl comes to him and says, you were with Jesus in Galilee. Peter denies it. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he goes out into the gateway where another servant girl sees him and says, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter denies it again, this time with an oath. I don't know this man. And after a while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, You've got to be one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then Peter begins to call down curses, and he swears at them, and he says, I don't know the man. And the rooster crows, and Peter remembers the words that Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. When Jesus had spoken these words to Peter, Peter said to Jesus, I will never. So Peter said, you will never. Now Peter has said, I will never, and yet both happen. Because again, Peter gets it wrong by looking at Jesus through his own lens, rather than seeing the world through the lens of Jesus. It's not up to us to dictate to God what he should do, nor what we should do. Whether we're impulsive, whether we we rebel, whether we get angry, whether we are afraid, we will stumble if we rely upon our own resources. And so Peter then becomes the stumbler that Jesus says, get behind me, and Peter hears his own stumbling when the rooster crows and he knows that he has denied Jesus, just as he said. It's ironic that Peter the rock becomes Peter the stumbler Stumbling block in the Greek is literally scandalone. It's scandalous. Peter's not being just told, this is a stumbling block. This is the wrong thing to do. You're going to trip. Jesus is saying this is scandalous. You have this so wrong that it's a scandal. For the Jews, the word meant an animal trap in which an animal could not get out of that anymore. For the Greeks, it was a rock on the path that one stumbles against. And so the irony again is that Peter the rock has placed himself in front of Jesus and has become the rock that he stumbles over. There's one more rock in the story. It's a stone which was in front of the tomb. But before that stone is rolled away and Jesus comes out of the tomb and Jesus seeks Peter out and restores him, Peter has to deal with his confession, you will never and I will never. Dr. Myron Augsburger wrote, the church is built on the redemptive suffering of the Messiah. It is not an ethnic body nor a political entity nor a moralistic association, but a fellowship of the redeemed. Its lifestyle is correlated with Jesus' identity as the crucified God, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. And so that's how God has orchestrated our salvation, that Jesus had to go to the cross. And the cross which becomes continually the stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Greeks is the only way for us to be saved. It's so interesting that Peter never quite gets away from this image. In Peter's first letter in chapter 1, starting at verse 2, Rather, chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Peter gives this invitation to a suffering church. He says, As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that will make them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So Peter the rock has a place in establishing God's church, but Jesus, of course, is the real rock because Peter, rocky, as Pastor Dan called him, still stumbles, and people continue to stumble over the cross. But in our trust in him, he will lead us to the place eventually where there will be no stumbling anymore. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What are some principles for us in our lives? First of all, as with Peter, stumbling is an ever-present danger. Just as physically we learn to walk and we fall, we're out hiking someplace, we traverse rocky ground, we fall. As we get older and age catches up to us, the challenges of advancing years or pressures, all people stumble. And the issue is to be aware of the stumbling that we are prone to and the stumbling that we do. Because as with Peter, we all stumble through our rebellion, through our anger, through our fear, through our impulsiveness. There is no life that is not sinless. There is no life that does not fail at some time, yours or mine. And so stumbling is always a present danger. And secondly, we know that stumbling brings consequences. And those consequences sometimes are borne mostly by us, but they can also be borne by the people around us. Peter's stumbling becomes a a problem for the disciples as well as for himself. It becomes a pressure, an added pressure upon Jesus. There's nothing Peter can do to prevent that. And there's nothing that Jesus can do in the moment to support Peter until finally Jesus meets him again and restores him. So we need to be aware that in our stumbling, there are consequences that reach into the world. Most importantly, in our stumbling, Christ does not abandon us. The stumbling block, Peter, the stumbling that he does, becomes a bump in the road rather than a cliff that Peter falls off of. Jesus later restores Peter to fellowship, As you look through the entire book of Acts, you can see what Peter's life was like because he picked himself up, allowed Jesus to forgive him, and moved ahead in life. So Christ does not abandon us. The opportunity to be forgiven and restored is always there in our lives. But repentance is the response that is called for for us. We're not to just walk away from our sin not just to walk away from our failures. If we've never made a decision to invite Christ into our hearts for forgiveness, this is the time to do it, to recognize that it's okay that we stumble because Christ can pick us up and forgive us. Or if we have committed our lives to Christ already and we stumble, to recommit our lives to him, to repent and to ask for his forgiveness for us and to continue to move on so that finally life can be, your life and my life, can be received as an offering to God. In the Matthew 16 passage that I read to you, it follows with this final challenge and invitation. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, would become my disciple, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and to follow. And that's a stumbling block for us. That can be difficult for us to take up that cross daily in the sense of the forgiveness and the power that God gives us in Christ. Because it all depends upon the cross. Jesus had to go to the cross to die, to be raised again, to forgive us for our sins. The cross is the key for us and for our salvation. Many years ago, there was a pastor who talked about Uh, a conversation with Reverend Temple who had written a wonderful old hymn, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow. And Reverend Temple said this. He said, when my son was small, we used to take walks together. We'd go through the fields and the neighboring pastures and and some of the hills around us. And at first, the little fellow would hold on to my finger. I would hold my hand out, and and when he was little, he would hold on. But he would trip and he would fall, and, and many times it wasn't enough, and so he'd lose hold of my finger and he would fall down. And so he finally said to me, Dad, I think instead if you would hold my hand, I would be safer in this. I wouldn't fall. So Pastor Temple turned and said, you know, he still stumbled many times after that, but he never hit the ground. And here's the message. As you walk with God, don't try so hard to hold on to him. Let him hold on to you. You may stumble. But if he's holding on to you, you will never fall. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the grip you have on our lives, the eternal strength of your grip upon us, which will never let us fall. So I pray, Lord God, that we would ask you to do that, whether for the first time or for for the opportunity to, to recommit our lives to you. May we turn to you and ask for your strength, that we may not stumble in the life that you've given us. May you be honored in the days and years ahead. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.